Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Hey, folks, welcome to Raising Equity. I'm Dr. Kira Banks, your host, and you can like, follow, subscribe on all channels, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Are we doing Twitter still? Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) I want to welcome you to Raising Equity. Today we have with us Dr. Crystal Menzies. And I'm excited to talk to her about her work, her research. And so I want to tell you a little bit about about her, about Dr. Menzies. A former educator in urban schools, Crystal drew on her personal expertise, African diaspora and history, and her Guyanese and African-American roots to found Emancipated, where she develops research-based educational experiences that center Black communities. And so I hope that you will engage in this conversation because, you know, at Raising Equity, we're all about understanding how people make sense of themselves in the world, how they understand systems and structures. And I'm excited for the conversation. So welcome, Crystal. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Emancipated. And and if folks want to look at the show notes, you'll see that it's Emancipated with the ED articulated at the end because of her expertise in education. Mm -hmm. So Emancipate Ed, the short version, is the goal is to help us shift our paradigms of possibility through these educational resources, specifically focusing on maroon communities. So what are maroon communities? What can we learn from maroon communities? And then how can we adapt maroonage these liberated spaces in our own lives. So people may be, whatever. That's where I was going to go next. There (laughs) might be people who don't know about Maroon communities. So tell us a bit about their history. So Maroon communities are free rebel Black societies throughout the Americas. And I emphasize rebel on purpose. So they were founded by self-emancipated Africans, so folks who ran away from enslavement, and they built these free societies hidden away from colonial plantation society. And any place enslavement existed, maroon communities existed. Sometimes they were small bands of, you know, a couple family units, and sometimes they were very large nation states. Um, and some maroon communities still exist today. So Jamaica has four well-known communities. Brazil has several, Suriname, Colombia. So, and they've like created their own culture and their own systems that were separate from colonial plantations. So I I was trying to remember the first time that I learned or read about maroon communities. And I mean, it was probably in college, but I was always left wondering, like, how, how did they do this? And how did they not, like you said, rebel, like, how did they continue to resist? What did that look like? Can you tell us a bit about maybe one of the stories or some stories that help people understand how they were able to create these and maintain these spaces? Mm-hmm. It was definitely a by any means necessary um, orientation. So one, geographic isolation and protection. They use the land around them as like a embedded defense system. So deep in the mountains and swamps and jungles, places that were treacherous to get to um, and that were e- more easy to defend once you created a community there. There was also... Queen Nanny, for example, is a Jamaican Maroon leader who was known as the queen of camouflage. So she would train her troops to like, you know, be completely still, cover themselves in leaves and dirt so they could do sneak attacks on the British if the, whenever the British tried to invade their communities. So geographic protection, 
also building up their own defenses using camouflage, you know, whatever type of systems they could create um, to keep their community protected. And then also a little bit of tricksterness. Um, so Farcel was a Maroon leader in what's now Dominica. And he was definitely known as a trickster. So he would go to the British and say, look, I know y'all tired of fighting this. Um, we're going to, I'll give up other Maroon communities if you let me and my people go free. And the British were like, okay, bet. And then he'd lead them to an abandoned site. So by the time the British got there, everything had been burned down. Nobody's there anymore. And so it was a lot of buying themselves peace for temporary periods of time by agreeing to certain terms and then breaking those terms in the future. Okay, so it wasn't as if they were hidden always, right? Like this this idea that they would negotiate or find ways to to be left alone. It that's I think that gives folks some more context. So would, for example, we hear about the Gullah Islands in the Carolinas, would they be an example of a Maroon community? If they were founded by folks who ran away and were external to col colonial plantation society, then okay. yes. So these communities didn't operate with, they weren't like legitimated by the state. Right. The, the reason why there were so many of these back and forth treaties is because they were considered an existential threat threat to slavery. You know, if we have created the whole system of biology and psychology and religion saying these people are inferior and aren't supposed to be free, and then you got folks over here living free and everybody knows that these communities exist, that was not good. So there were all, there were consistent attempts to destroy Maroon communities. I, I would imagine, yeah, like you said, they, th they <laughs> threaten the, the ideological framework that is thin mm -hmm. and inaccurate upon which our country was built. I mean, it's part of why also like you think about Haiti being such a such a important um, country in terms of, of of revolution, right? Like, oh, well, we, we don't want you to know about <laughs> ways in which slaves have literally, literally, you know, fought a revolution to be free as a whole country, mm -hmm. let alone these small communities, which could band together and do the same, right? And so what do you think why, like, why let them exist? What do you think allowed them to survive and thrive even to today, as you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Definitely the self-defense portion. Um, now, the Maroon communities that did end up, you know, being overtaken and destroyed were typically, typically did not have the same level of geographic protection. So there's a fort in North Florida sometimes called Prospect Bluff, sometimes called Fort Negro, that was ended up being a place where a lot of folks self-emancipated themselves from Georgia and ran away to the fort. And it was a former British fort. The fort handed it, uh, the British handed it over to the Maroons and to indigenous allies. Georgia plantation owners were like, we cannot have this fort right on our border with all these free black folks. Like they were publishing a newspaper advocating for freedom. And so they sent, at the time, Andrew Jackson sent troops, was leading some troops to destroy the fort. And because all they had was the fort, there was no surrounding area, um, the troops got lucky and hit where the ammunition was stored, which causes, caused a series of explosions within the fort. So some people made it out and they ran away further south into the swamp in Florida, uh, the Everglades. 
And so a large community kind of disbanded into smaller bands uh, deep in the swamp. Interesting. Those who survived, like even to this day, I went to a couple of maroon communities, like a kampong is way up in the mountains and very, very deep. It's in Jamaica. <clears throat> and so there were, you know, checkpoints where people can warn, okay, the British are coming, <laughs> the British are coming. And this is where the camouflage came in. Cujo was known, he was another Maroon leader um, for sitting in a cave and like listening for troops mm-hmm. to come. Then after they had all passed, they would like set him up in a trap situation. After he heard all the troops mm-hmm. pass, he would blow on um, an abang is what it's called, like a cow horn. So let them know it's time to get stuff popping. And then they would attack the British. So the ones we see in existence today typically have that type of geographic protection mm-hmm and utilize that land to their advantage. So definitely utilizing their intelligence to consistently, you know, fight against. Right. <laughs> I, I love these stories that we often don't hear and learn about in in our traditional education system because people think about racism, white supremacy, right, as as being slavery, Jim Crow, you know, civil rights movement, if you even get that, MLK, ta-da, today, right? And mm-hmm. I, I love to understand the intricacies of history so we can understand that that, like, fight for liberation has been ongoing, has been ongoing. Mm-hmm. It didn't just happen in the 60s. It didn't just happen with the movement for Black Lives and BLM. Like, it, it's been ongoing. And there have been people and groups for whom they've been successful, Right. And so that's what's mm-hmm. to me is so inspiring about maroon communities. But what led you what led you down this line of research? Well, so I was a history major in undergrad, and that's when I first understood maroon communities. I had heard about them earlier, but didn't, you know, didn't make sense in my little brain. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, this is this is a powerful stuff. But didn't see it as something that I would I would incorporate into my work or mm-hmm. anything. It took, after my PhD program, I entered the nonprofit world, and this is Ed Reform nonprofit. Okay. So these are not grassroots entities. These are people who parachute in <laughs> and like, we're going to save you. And I was naive. I didn't know any better. And I just noticed the same patterns, like weaponizing terms like anti-racism and doing nothing. They felt like using the words equal do with the thing. And it's... I'm an educator. So when I see these things, and I was a critical race theorist, that's what my foundation, I assume it's a, a knowledge gap. Like, oh, okay, you maybe don't have a clear understanding of what this could look like in practice. And there's multiple ways it could look. This ain't it. <laughs> and so in becoming more vocal about things that we can add material, tangible changes that we could make, being targeted and being vilified by folks who were using that language. We are inclusive and anti-racist and we're disrupting systems of oppression and left one space, entered another. And I was very much like, I'm just Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here so I don't get fined. I'm not gonna say anything. (laughs) Still saw the same patterns and I couldn't help myself. Especially when I see folks being abused, like more junior black women in particular. So I was like, I'm gonna say something. Same things happening. Um, And then I became really depressed, like legit diagnosed with Mm. depression because I was like, where do you go? 
Like I chose this field because I'm passionate about education. I'm passionate about Black folks' experiences in informal and formal educational spaces. Like where can I go where I can actually pay my bills and do good work with people who want to be good people? It doesn't mean we're, you know, we're human. We do good things all the time, but like we're on this journey together. Um, and the larger question was like, how can I operate as a free person surrounded by an oppressive system? And that's what brought me back to Maroons. Because I'm not an optimist. I love sci-fi and fantasy, but as far as when I have hope, it's when I've seen something exist and see how they exist that we can learn from. And that's what took me to Maroons. Like, wait a minute, there's actually been some folks who were free folks surrounded by oppressive systems and these oppressive systems did not want them to exist. Um, and started to create like a framework, you know, the teacher in me, <laughs> a framework of how does one become a Maroon? Like, what are the steps to take? You know, you have an awakening, you take the active steps to liberate yourself. You build community with like-minded folks. You have your rituals and, you know, nation building uh, systems. Shared this with a friend. She's like, this is great, but nobody even knows who Maroons are. I was like, you know what, you're right. So the first product are the hidden history cards that share the stories of some Maroon communities. So we talk about important themes like geographic isolation and protection, self-determination, because they wouldn't, you know, by any means necessary, we're gonna do what we what it needs to, to take. Spirituality and kinship networks were very are very important to Maroon society. So I wanted to highlight these important themes and then we identify nine communities and then nine um, Maroon leaders. So this is not all the Maroon communities that have existed. It's just a little mm -hmm. taste. To mm -hmm. So if people are hearing this and they're thinking, ooh, yeah, like how, how does one become a Maroon community? Uh, what does that look like? Like you mentioned some of the, some of the pieces around geographic location and the kinship. And, and it's interesting, as I was reading up and preparing for our interview, um, you know, that's something that as black folks, we, we embody regardless of if we are in a maroon community, just like fictive kins, right? Like this is your cousin, this is your auntie, this is your uncle, like all the people that we went to college with that were in our wedding are our kids, aunts and uncles, even though they are not their literal aunts and uncles, like you're going to call your uncle Dre or uncle James, your uncle Jonathan to get their wisdom. They are put in this, in, in the family and I would imagine that similar to how during enslavement, right, we we had our family, but we also had kinship from people who weren't our blood family, that that's what would keep a maroon community together, right? Like you are banded, you are, you're, you're um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're committed to each other um, and you become family as you to survive. So is mm -hmm. there anything else like around kinship that you feel like? people maybe miss or misunderstand that we need to that we need to to lift up from what you've learned about maroon communities you touched on some of it like the importance of not just blood kinship but these fictive kinship communities mm -hmm. and also accountability within those fictive kinship communities so San Basilio de Palenque is a maroon community outside of Cartagena in Colombia still exists Deep in, the, deep in the jungle, they really are actively pro-Black mm -hmm. and like pro-Black tourism. 
So they really want Black Americans to come and visit uh, Palenque. So that's why I went, you know, way back. It was a graduation gift to myself in 2016. And I was really fascinated by how they structure their society. So they have these, I'm probably going to mispronounce it because they speak Palenquera, which is not Spanish. It's a mixture of Spanish, Portuguese, and African languages. So they all speak Spanish and they also speak a language called Palenquera. So they're called like cuadrados, which are age-based clans. So like the people who were born around the same time as you, you have your own little clan system, but everybody has a responsibility within that system. So if someone has a death in the family, one, there's a group of people who are responsible for the funeral rites, carrying out the tradition, but there's also someone within that clan who's responsible for taking care of you making sure they get food consistently, making sure they're being like nurtured in whatever way nurturing looks like. And so that was, that's the accountability piece. Not the like, we gonna beat you if you're not doing this. It's a, we have a responsibility to each other. And this is what it looks like for us to be in community with each other. They also do fun things, you know, form bands and things, but it's it's not just fun. It's also the deeper ties that bind us yeah and that stood out to me because Palenque is also a community that doesn't have police they don't need police because of this like accountability system and structure and when there are petty crimes in the community they talk it out with the elders like so-and-so stole my bike there's no like let's put them away or anything like that here what's going on what are we doing here um now if there's serious crimes which is rare in the community, then they will exile people from the community. You like use lose all rights and responsibilities of being a maroon from Palenque. Okay, interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there, I had a chance to to travel there and I didn't end up going. But now when I do, I want to go visit because I was going to ask: Do they are they welcoming of outsiders to outsiders? Okay, yes, very much so. They're happy to see us. You're going to see a whole bunch of abuelas sitting on the porch, <laughs> you know, telling, do you look blocks, baby, go this direction in, in different languages. Love it. And, um, the food also is amazing. So they're known for their cuisine and like their cultural. Yeah. In the great Colombian society. Huh, putting it on my list. Absolutely. So help me understand what you've taken from your research of marine communities and and brought into the classroom like what are the implications for how we teach how we do education um and or implications for what we do as educators and like parents in the home so what are the implications for teaching children Mm -hmm. so when i was a teacher maroonage wasn't like front and center in my brain so there's a lot of things I was doing that in hindsight it was like creating these communities but they it wasn't there wasn't an intentionality if you will but the common the core themes that I see across all of these what I call fugitive spaces I mean there's other people who talk about fugitivity you know it's not a Dr. Crystal Menzies thing but these places that are a departure from these systems are one the awakening piece is critical. A recognition that the status quo does not have to be <laughs> what is. There are other ways of being. There have been other ways of being. So really problematizing what exists. 
in our interpersonal relationships, intrapersonal relationships in our society at large um, by exposing people to other ways of being and thinking. <clears throat> so how did a lot of indigenous societies live? And I use indigenous in the broader mm -hmm. context, so like pre-colonial Africa, things like that. Um, and then also, okay, now that we know these other worlds have existed and do exist, what should we do in this space to create another world? What does that look like in our accountability structures? What does that look like in how we communicate with, with each other? How does What does that look like in how we connect with each other? <clears throat> And then how do we like kind of systematize these things and the, these systems and processes? And specifically what another awakening I've had just in doing this work is the importance of place-based mm -hmm. community. I have a strong community. Like I, said, I told you earlier, I've lived in a lot of different places. I think the Bay is about a seventh major metro area, but I'm a Cali native from Southern California. Okay. Um, realizing how important it is to have people where you are and to continue to build and cultivate those relationships. Cause I have it broadly. And in doing this work, I reflect like I've been slowly isolating myself, you know, part pandemic working remotely. And I was like, wait a minute, I I'm missing a piece of myself. Like it, this work is very intellectual, yeah. but I'm missing the embodied nature yeah. of it. Um, and really getting out and exploring my local community, building relationships with like-minded people. So that's another piece. And I created a curriculum. So there's not just uh -huh. the cards. There's an intergenerational curriculum that like has these prompts. First, we're going to, you know, explore Marunich together. We're going to have uh, activities that center storytelling, like our own family stories. And then... The last portion is now go out to your community and like talk to people. It's more, you know, spe specific than that. Don't just go to random yeah. people. But it might be like find an organization that does work that you love. Go and talk to the founder. Become engaged in their work. Or find a local Black-owned bookstore, you know, things like I that. I love the framework because it helps. Well, I have like two, three different research concepts that are going through my head <laughs> because it really does help us learn like reach back, kind of Sankofa, reach back and then vision mm -hmm. forward, right? And so it made me think about, do you know Adrian Marie Brown's work? Yeah, yes. so I mean, she talks about like, she talks about this idea of of the local and like fractals, right? Like what is local becomes global, right? And so how we do practice in our home, in our own bodies, in our relationships, in our homes, in our communities and how that, how we practice being together and how that then manifests as we want to ch change systems, right? Like, and mm -hmm. so what I like about this idea of maroonage is that you're visioning forward, but you're learning from what was and what is because communities still exist, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea of like what's possible. Um, and so, and I have this framework called raising equity nerds where we think about naming. <laughs> the systems, you know, educating ourselves by the back about the backstory, reframing it from being just individual to like collective and institutional, and then uh, dreaming up solutions and starting to act. And I can see ways in which like you could think about that framework as you have that awakening that you mentioned, right? Like as we, mm -hmm. as we name what's happening and then we start to learn like there are other ways of being. Mm -hmm. And 
the last thing that I'll throw in there, because you just got me thinking all these different connections, <laughs> is I'm reading this book called, um, I think it's like Quit. I think that's what it's called. But it's about quitting. Yeah, it's called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away by Annie Duke. I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean to walk away from the status quo, from the way that we do, we've always done things. And she, she highlights, and there's research to suggest this, and we all in our bodies and our lived experience have probably experienced it, that there's real pull to stay with the way that things are. And, and what can help mm -hmm. jar that is realizing that choosing to stay with the status quo is a choice, just like choosing to do something different is a choice. And so this, this mm -hmm. history of maroonage that you are bringing forward to the present in ways through the cards and the curriculum for people to understand, I think is important because it can model to people that it's possible and that it's not just a pie in the sky idea of a way of being and that that can in some ways give folks more courage and willingness to go against the status quo, to do things differently when they see that modeled, um, because it is. So all, all of that to say, you've, I think you have pushed me to, in thinking about like this idea of the awakening and like what pulls someone into the awakening. How do we get more people to, to think about creating those spaces in their own world and then collectively and the power of showing people and even just like sharing with people these stories can help them maybe have the courage to try. Mm -hmm. And that's really my goal. I want to plant these seeds of, wait, you mean something can be different? Something has mm -hmm. been different? And I don't, I'm careful to not position maroon communities as like utopias. Yeah. When you are surrounded by in a society that wants you dead, there are some trade-offs that we wouldn't like. Like I said, some of these treaties uh, that they end up breaking. <laughs> and the part of the framework I created is also there's an explicit part of trade-offs. What are you willing to give and what are your non-negotiables? And getting very clear on that, because from my nonprofit world, the non-negotiable, the stated non-negotiables were different than what they were actually giving up. So like being very explicit about that those areas and then there's also that critical praxis piece now that we've identified these we've had this awake awakening we've identified these are the specific systems and the status quo that do lead to our oppression what is the antidote to that system and i love uh, dr tima okun's work mm -hmm. in this of like naming white supremacy right. culture what does that look like to then do something differently and what can we learn in this awakening stage when we learned about all these other ways of being what can we learn from that to undo this particular thing. Yes, yes. And even just naming, sometimes naming it is is enough, right? So when I work with organizations, we'll talk about like that sense of urgency, right? Like that as one of the one of the characteristics. And they'll say, well, well, we have to, we have to move quickly because it's a business. It's a right, right, right. And it's like, it's not saying that you have no sense of urgency. It's saying that that is the mm -hmm. only mode, that's the only gear that you have, and that everything is so urgent that you can't slow down and consult, get another perspective, <laughs> think about the implications of your actions several generations from now, or slow down to learn from the wisdom of generations past, right? And so I, I do think there's a way in which we sometimes, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like can be very 
brisk about like the when when we're willing when we are hearing things that are new and different, right? Well, oh, well that doesn't work or that doesn't fit or well that's not possible. It's like actually when we can slow down and really take in the concept, it's like wait, some of that is possible. And I'm choosing mm-hmm. to say that it's not because it's just easier to remain in this like hamster wheel of urgency um, because it's the way that things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like, so I, 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 and I, I, I appreciate that you're not pushing to like say, oh, it's a utopia, but it, it it's a, a reminder that we can do things differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is important. I think for educators, um, I do, I'm a psychologist by training, but I have done work in schools and work with educators who who want to to teach differently, who who want to get out of the rut of of how they were taught to teach a topic or a subject, whether it's bringing in new information, um, new content, or approaching it through a different modality. And there often is this like feeling of of paralysis, like wanting to but not knowing how to. What advice would you give to educators who want to either bring in some of the material you're talking about or just simply want to think differently and 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 bring in a different way of seeing things that's outside of the status quo? Mm-hmm. I have like two answers for that okay. question. One about the Maroon communities is one, just raising awareness amongst your students. Like these communities existed, share some of these stories. Like <laughs> King Bayano in Panama is, is so fascinating to me. He led the largest maroon revolt in the Americas. He had a total 1,200 troops who were beating the Spanish bad until some trickery happened. You know, the Spanish love to say, okay, we'll sign a treaty to stop fighting. And then when you show up to sign a treaty, they arrest you. So... <laughs> Um, and, and Maroons were making a lot of alliances with indigenous communities. And in some cases, English pirates who also wanted to take the Spanish down for different reasons. (laughs) So there was a lot of this alliance building, but when Bayano was captured, he was so well respected as a military leader by the Spanish that first they exiled him to Peru. Then they exiled him to Spain to like live off of the wealthy that accumulated stealing Spanish gold and silver. Like, I think kids would just be fascinated by that type of character. Um, So one, getting them excited about people who, I'm thinking of Black kids, okay? All kids can benefit from this, but people who look like you, who face these real systems that legit wanted them to die, and how they fought back and pushed back and thrived in the meantime, you know, I think that would get a lot of younger folks excited and, and moving on up the chain of middle school and yeah. high school. So step one for teachers, introducing Maroons to your classrooms. You can buy the cards. You ain't got to buy the cards. I just want people to get this information, but go ahead and buy them if you want to. But the second piece, and this is where my research comes in. Right now, my Maroon community work and my research are separate because of the nature of my postdoc. You know, I'm in the learning sciences folks, but I would love to, I have a framework to blend them. I just haven't had the ability to blend them yet. But my work focuses on community cultural wealth. Have you heard of community? I have not. By chance? Tell me about it. But um, 
developed by a critical Latinx scholar named Tara J. Yoso that identified six types of capital that exist in minoritized communities. So aspirational capital, you know, being able to dream and think big, regardless of what you see in front of you, familial capital. So using your kinship networks um, to, to exist to navigate spaces. There's social capital, again, your extended social networks that could be institutional or outside of institutions. <clears throat> Navigational capital, so how we navigate these different spaces and resistant capital. So like creating counter narratives to these stereotypes and ways of being. And linguistic capital. In the Latinx scholarship, it talks about like bilingualism, mm -hmm. but in my scholarship, I talk about like not just Black folks verbal communicative dexterity, mm -hmm. but also like our physical embodiment, our facial features. You know, we can have a whole conversation without right. saying a word. Or we could say <laughs> the same words. You good? In like 10 different ways. Right. <laughs> you good. Exactly. And so what I, in general, the common things connecting my work are like making stuff plain to people. This is what it looks like. Not the only way it has to look. I don't want people, oh, this is the one way Dr. Minzy said. No, I'm this this is just some foundational pieces. So what does aspirational capital look like? So I help teachers, one, cultivate and leverage these types of capital in their, their students. So by sharing a lot of storytelling taking place in these classrooms. So sharing stories of these windows and mirrors, people who look like yep. their students, and what they actually did to do things, <clears throat> highlighting those elements in your students. Do you know how so-and-so did this? And I told that story, yeah, I actually see this. When you did ABCD, that's what I saw. So you're increasing self-efficacy you know, while raising aspirations, um, allowing the space for students to use the full breadth of their language. Um, a trick I see a lot in classrooms where teachers are cultivating navigational capital is teachers never answer the students' questions. They throw it back to another student. So if they're like, how do I do this? Where do I do this? They're like, I don't know. What do you think? Where do you, what do you think they should do? Then get another student, what do you think they should do? Or they might ask, what other resources do you have other than me that you think can answer this question for you. And so it gets students thinking about not just the teacher as the source of knowledge and information, right. it's their peers and also what other resources they have, their books, their library. Oh, I can go do this thing. And really being intentional because what we see in a lot of the college persistence data, this black and brown students who navigate well is they're tapping into all of their social capital, their peer networks, their you know, professors and all those different things. So that's a very long answer, but find ways to cultivate and leverage these types of capital. I have a simple framework that gives some ideas for that. And then also how to identify it in their students. So if yeah. you hear your students say, oh yeah, my mom took me to a museum. I actually saw this piece in one of my data points. Um, a student, a black male student had solved a very complex math problem. And it, some of it was, areas the teacher hadn't covered yet. <laughs> and so the teacher was like, how did you do that? And he was like, oh, my mom helped me work through this at home. That's something you keep in your teacher mind and you continue to reinforce that. One, oh, your mom must be brilliant and you're brilliant for doing this outside. You know, you don't just be like, oh, okay, that's cool. You hype that up. And then you also knowing that about the student, what else have you done with your mom? 
you know, what else can you do with your mom about this when you're having issues? So those are some. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I know you don't necessarily work in higher ed or with higher ed students, right? Mostly K through 12. But it's making me think, because a lot of my research has been emerging adults and college age um, students, Black students in particular, and some of the research that you mentioned around uh, persistence in college is that you know, you're willing to reach out for help and to study in groups that mm -hmm. some of the students who struggle, Black students struggle the most in like pre-med when they are isolated, when they don't want to let mm -hmm. someone know that they don't know. And so they don't work in groups when actually working in groups can help you because it reinforces what you know. It can help you use your your peers as a resource, fill in those gaps, right? And and but And it's sometimes hard to get Black students who feel like, Maybe they're first gen or maybe they just feel like they're out of their element to to reach out for help. But the maroon mm -hmm. communities could be an interesting way for them to realize the power of the collective. Right. So you could mm -hmm. run away, be a fugitive and create your own. Right. But how much more powerful if you were a community and had a lookout person and had somebody who had this expertise. And if you framed it as that, they'd be like, oh yeah, on this probably white campus, like we're our own, we got some maroonage, you know, guidelines and ways that we're working together. Like that could be something that you could, I would imagine, take to like black student unions and might resonate with them mm -hmm. and get them thinking about the collective in a way in which they sometimes don't enter college thinking about, depending on their background and um, how they mm -hmm. see the world, their racial identity, all sorts of things can impact whether they see or, and are seeking that collective when they come to college. But it, that could be a useful. Mm -hmm. I could see. I could see you taking that to college campuses. I can too. And I'm there you go. Down. There you go. Um, because you might feel uncomfortable approaching a professor, but if you built a community, there might be there's probably someone in that community who doesn't feel exactly. Uncomfortable. And they can go to the professor, ask the questions and bring that right. back to the group. When I, I was taking stats in graduate school, um, a person got us together, a handful of us, and was like, look, I'm going to get us a stats tutor, independent of this class, because I don't understand what the professor's talking about. And he's the one who did the research, found a tutor on campus, scheduled the time for us to meet. I didn't have to do any of that. I just had to be in community with these folks. Um to let them know I was down yeah. for it. And I could definitely see that playing Yeah, out. I like that. I like that. So if folks want to hear more about you, your work, how can they find you? How can they support you? Uh, so my website is emancipatededucation.com. Um, and that's where you can order the products or reach out to me individually for talks or lectures or things like that. I do host workshops. But I'm switching things up. Um, you know, I'm in the space of like, okay, I have all these skills and things, but that doesn't mean I have to do all Absolutely. <laughs> so just still marinating on that. I also have an Instagram page, emancipate underscore ed, where I sometimes occasionally uh, share updates. But really going to the website, emancipatededucation.com, you could sign up for the newsletter. That's where I'll be sharing most of my reflections and informations and like learning from the field. Love it. Love it. Well, I hope, I hope listeners, I hope you do go and support Crystal because I've learned a lot just preparing for our conversation and in our conversation today and at raising equity. We sometimes talk about like raising your equity IQ, right? Like understanding these concepts from a different perspective, building your knowledge base. 
we all have room to learn and, and ways to grow. And so for me as a black woman, knowing about maroon communities, but not really knowing, not really knowing these these different characteristics and that I could go visit one. It's it totally is on my mm -hmm. list now. Uh, so I appreciate you and I thank you for for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to Raising Equity. Remember, you can follow, like, and subscribe across all social media platforms, Dr. Kira Banks. <laughs>